All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. Uh, my name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and we are in the middle of a series called God Is. We're going to be taking a look at a series of truths about God. God is um, great. That's what we looked at last week. God is gracious. That's what we're looking at this week. And because God is these things, we are free uh, to not be those things, which is really, really good news. Um, <clears throat> grab your Bibles. We're going to Psalm 145. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you and open that one up. On our Bible, it's page 524. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that one with you. We would love to put the Word of God into your hands so that you can read it and study it over the course of the week and, uh, and dig into it. Feel free um, to uh, take notes, write in it, whatever. It's our gift to you. If you own your own Bible, feel free to write in that one. Okay. All right, so we're in Psalm 145. Um, page 524, and we're going to be looking at the first two verses and then verses 8 and 9, starting in verse 1. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Drop down to verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. The Word of the Lord. So last week, we took a look at the first of the four truths that we're going to be unpacking from Psalm 145, and that was that God is great, right? We we took a look at the fact that He is majestic in His glory, that He is all-powerful, that His kingdom has no boundaries. And because God is great, I can stop trying to be in control, Right? Because God is great, I can stop being uh, afraid of what's going to happen. Right? Um, what we're talking about ultimately is, is believing this truth and then allowing that truth to sink in so that we don't just have a mental assent to it, but it actually has an impact on our hearts. Right? It actually influences our, our emotional well-being. It, ha- it, it impacts how we go through life. Right? It ultimately means that we can not only know it to be true, but we can rest in it to be good. Right? Well, God is great because God is great. I really don't have to be in control, which is really good news because I can't no matter how hard I try, right? Because God is great. I don't have to be afraid because because His good heart leads His all-powerful hand. I can rest, right? This week, we're going to take a look at this truth. God is gracious. And because God is gracious, I can stop hiding, okay? Because God is gracious, I can stop hiding, all right, when I was a teacher, um, I, I had the great privilege of teaching a lot of different literature, one of my favorite things to do. Um, and I have taught through many anthologies, and I taught a lot of stories. And I'm sorry that I don't remember the title or the author of the story I'm going to reference this morning, uh, but I enjoyed teaching it. And it was basically a story of a kid, uh, a boy who was growing up in a rural setting, and he would play with all the neighborhood kids. And um, about once a week, they would get together this, this whole community-wide hide-and-seek game which he absolutely loved. And as a little kid, he was often found very quickly because he just wasn't very good at hiding, right? And so he would hide, they'd find him, and he'd be like, oh, man. And, 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 and he always noticed who was found last, right? Because those were the kids that hid the best. And everyone's like, yeah, you did great. And, and, and so there's like this competition thing, right? And so um, he, he really studied and thought, man, how can I hide so that they don't find me? How can I hide so that it takes them longer to, to discover me? And, and then he figured it out, man. He's like, this will be the best place to hide. And so he found this place to hide and he climbed in there 
And a good portion of the story really is just his thinking as, as he is, is hiding. Because as he's sitting there, he's imagining in his head, like all the, all the places the kids are looking, right? They're looking there, they're looking there, they're looking there. They probably just found Joey, and they probably just found Susie, and they probably just found, but they haven't found me. They haven't found me, right? And he's in there, and it's cramped, and it's tight. And he's in there like a really long time to the point where it's actually starting to get dark. And it's starting to get a little cold. And he's like, wow, I guess I hid so well that, that they would never discover me, right? So he climbs out and he's like, here I am. And nobody's around. And so he goes looking for them and he finds them down at the river. They'd completely forgotten about him. And he walks in and he's like, hey, here I am. And they're like, yeah, where else would you be? And they're like, I, I was hiding. You're still playing that? And there was that sudden kind of existentially revealing moment when he realized he didn't matter. That's one of those moments where we're like, aw, right? Poor kid. Aw. It's one of those moments. But here's the thing. I think that, that part of what made the story so powerful wasn't just that it was a, a kid suddenly discovering that if he hid long enough, people wouldn't care, that he really was not as important. I think it's actually um, revealing of our own hearts. Because here's the thing, you guys, we all hide. We all hide. We all have things to hide, and we all have things about us we want hidden. So things we've done and things we are, right? We call those things guilt and shame, right? Things I've done and, and things I am. And, and, and I want to keep those things well-guarded and hidden. Why? Because I feel like if they're exposed, um, you're not going to like me. You're not going to love me. You're, you're you're probably not going to want to be around me. You might make fun of me. You might hurt me, right? And, and so all those areas where I've been hurt in the past, I, I hide them. But what ends up happening is, is you get really good at hiding. And then you start resenting the people who stop looking. Because you really do want to be known. You really do want to be loved. You really do want to be in relationship with people. You really do have this deep need to be unconditionally seen and unconditionally accepted. And so what ends up happening is you hide and then you resent the fact that people stop looking. You hide and then you get mad at people. You get mad at God because they let you stay hidden. But you're terrified to come out. Here's the thing, you guys. God is gracious. And because God is gracious, I can stop hiding. It's a very simple truth to say. It's an incredibly difficult truth to live out. Right? And that's why we're going to have to dig in a little bit and, and, and take a look at, at how this impacts us. Okay? These are truths, by the way, all four of them. God is good. God is great. God is gracious. God is glorious. All four of these truths are things that we not only need to believe, but we need to keep believing. They're not only things we need to see, but we need to see more clearly, which means we need to move progressively into these truths. And we unpacked this in the first two verses of last week. Now, before I get into that, I almost forgot. Um, I'm going to show you a video. This is... Um, from Soma Communities. This is one of our Acts 29 sister churches out in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, they did a great series of videos to accompany really these four truths. And so let's take a look at that. My name is Greg, and this is my story. For a long time, I felt like I was living my life in a courtroom. Every day, I would wake up and begin the process of having to prove myself to my judge. 
Sometimes that judge was myself, and I would lay awake at the end of the day trying to count up the, the, my performance during that day, all the good works that I had done. And if it was good enough, I'd be able to sleep well. And if it wasn't good enough, which was most of the time, I wouldn't be able to sleep so well. Sometimes that judge was God, and it looks like me, uh, sort of very similar, trying to amass all of my good performance together, sort of to build a case for myself, so that hopefully I could be accepted before him. And sometimes that judge was others, other people, my, my friends, uh, my parents, my pastors. It was almost like they became my God, and it was like I would do anything to, to serve them and to get them to, to like me. I would even change who I was. I would change my appearance and put on a sort of facade to, to make myself more presentable, more acceptable, more desirable, more lovable. After I had lived here in this, in, in this church community that I've been a part of here for about a year, um, really living life on life with people closer in a way that I haven't ever before, I was able to come to a place where I was able to be honest with them about what I was feeling. I was feeling a lot of anger, very frustrated, very anxious a lot, uh, extremely just a smoldering high temperature of a man, just very angry, because it, it seemed like I could never say no to anything. I was saying yes to all these schedule commitments and, and, all the, and everything I could get my hands on, and it didn't matter how well I performed or how hard I worked during those things, I could never find rest at the end of my day or at the end of my weekend. And after about a year, I became extremely burnt out. And I came to my community and I just told them, I said, I am very angry, I'm very stressed out, I need some, some help. Although that was a really hard step for me, I found that by sharing it, and by having a lot of conversations and, and just working through that in the context of, of God's church, I realized there was a lie that was at, deep at the heart of everything that was going on. And the lie was that God is not gracious and therefore I have to prove myself to Him, to myself, to everyone. When God really started to, to bring, uh, bring a certain truth to light, I really started to experience rest. This truth is best expressed, I think, in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul, speaking about Jesus in verse 21, says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, a lot of my problem was that it didn't matter how much evidence or how good performance or how much hard work I brought to the table in God's courtroom. It just was never good enough. But now I realize that all along, my acceptance isn't based on what I do, but on what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf. I realize that when God the judge looks at me, he sees Christ's righteousness. And that on the cross, when God looked at Jesus, he saw my sin. And there's real rest in there for those who live their days in a courtroom of performance. There's real joy. There's real hope. There's, there's a real deep breath of 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 rest in that. I love that story, and I, I love the videos. And one thing you're going to find as we kind of push into this is, is obviously <clears throat> he is sharing his, you know, the old school word testimony, right? He's sharing his story of how God has been working on him. But what I love about it is really that sense that it's a progressive work, that, that this is something he has seen and continues to see and sees more clearly, right? We're talking about truths here that, that aren't simply like, oh, yeah, you persuaded me, I get it. 
We're talking about truths here that, that you discover at a deeper and deeper level as you see how they apply to your life and how they apply to your heart and really how you're not believing them, right? How you're acting out of the lie that, that in this case, God's not gracious, right? And, and I, need to, I need to prove myself. I need to hide and, and, and pretend, right? And, and so at the beginning of, of Psalm 145, David is basically making a case for, for um, really meditating on these four truths, right? David's making a case that it's, that it's important to, to actually say these things on a regular basis, right? He begins in verse one, I will extol you, my God, and my King. I will bless your name forever and ever. That is a commitment of his will, right? It's a response of his heart, but it's also a commitment of his will, right? We talked about that last week a little bit, that when he, when he looks at God and he says, holy cow, you're great. That's a response of his heart, right? But there are going to be other times when God's strength seems small, and so it's not a response of his heart. It's a preemptive act on his heart. His words not only express his heart, they shape his heart. And so he chooses, like in verse 2, every day I will bless you. Every day. And praise your name forever and ever. He, he determines that I will put myself in the position of worshiper. I will put myself in the position of reminding myself of who you are every day. Whether it feels true or not. Whether, whether that truth is really outflowing from a response of my heart or it's me preaching to my heart, telling my heart and reminding my heart, this is true, right? And so one of the key truths that we need to remind ourselves of is that God is gracious. Look down in verse 8. <clears throat> the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and His mercy is over all that he has made. Obviously, there are two key words in this passage that we need to look at. God is gracious and God is merciful. A God of grace and a God of mercy, right? And when we look at those words, I think it's important that we define our terms, okay? Um, when we talk about God um, exercising grace, what we're talking about is, is him giving us what we don't deserve, some people define grace as God's unmerited favor, like God's favor given to us, even though we don't deserve it, right? We've defined grace in the past as, as an acronym, right? Each of the letters representing a different word, God's riches at Christ's expense, right? It, it is God giving us what we could not earn. God in his favor, um, accrediting to us, attributing to us, giving to us what we can't deserve or earn, right? Mercy, on the other hand, is God not giving us what we do deserve, right? Mercy is God saying, right now, you deserve this, but I'm not going to give it to you, okay? You deserve a swift, swift kick in the pants. You, you deserve judgment. You, you deserve righteous um, anger, but I will mercifully withhold. I will not give you what you do deserve, right? So grace, God giving us what we don't deserve, mercy, God um, not giving us what we do deserve, right? This is uh, a revelation of the heart of God, right? David is meditating on this and reminding himself, God is gracious, right? He is driven by steadfast love. Now, this is a direct reference, by the way, to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. If you were an Israelite reading this, which that would have been the original audience when David wrote the Psalms, it was for to lead the worship of, of the community of the Israelites, um, they would have known exactly what David was referring to because this is actually a, a fairly famous passage um, in Exodus 34. 
um, where God reveals himself and talks to, to Moses, okay? Um, I want to give you a little bit of the context because this is right after Moses had to go back up the mountain with the second pair of Ten Commandments. Let me give you context. All right, the nation of uh, Israel is in slavery in Egypt, right? We know this story. Uh, God miraculously delivers them, right? The ten plagues and Pharaoh hardens his heart and Moses leads his people into freedom across the Red Sea. And then, and then God leads them through the desert and the wilderness. Um, he's, a, he's a pillar of fire by night and, a, and a, a column of smoke by day. And he is feeding them with manna, which is this bread that rains down from heaven. And, 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 and there's this miraculous water flowing from a rock. I mean, it's, it's really crazy. But it's God basically saying, I'm committed to caring for you. I will free you. I will protect you. I will care for you. And they eventually come to this mountain called Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God says, all right, let's pause here for a minute because I got a deal for you. Let's see if you want it. Okay. Here's my deal. You guys can be my peculiar people. I love that phrase. You can be uh, my unique people among the people groups. You can, you can live in the outpouring of my blessing, but here's the condition. You have to do everything I tell you. You have to obey all my commandments. And if you don't, I'm going to curse you. What do you think? The Israelites are like, yeah, we're in, right? We will do all that the Lord has commanded us. That's exactly what they said. We will do all that the Lord has commanded us. And God's like, all right, Moses, come on up. Come to the top of the mountain. There's fire and lightning and smoke and trembling. I mean, it's kind of scary. Um, and Moses goes up there, and the Israelites are staying down below camping. And, and while Moses is up on the mountain, God reveals himself to Moses, and they have this intimate time where God's kind of shaping Moses' heart. And he gives Moses two tablets, and on those two tablets are ten words. And those ten words become our ten commandments, okay? Um, and Moses, after he's done, um, comes down the mountain. I mean, he is just, we talk about mountaintop experiences, you know what I'm saying? Like he is coming down from the presence of God, carrying the tablets. They're still warm in his hand. You know what I'm saying? Like right off the Xerox machine, these things are fresh and he's coming down the mountain. And when he gets down to the camp, what he discovers is that the Israelites got bored while they were waiting. That's what the text says. They got bored. So what did they do? They took all of their gold, melted it down and made a golden calf. And they were worshiping this thing, like dancing around it and doing things we're not going to talk about, right? Around this golden calf to worship this thing, saying, the golden calf has delivered us from, from Egypt. And Moses is like, are you kidding me? Right? The Ten Commandments are right here. Number one is, you shall have no other God before me. Number two is, you shall make no graven image. <laughs> they already broke first two. They're on their way to a really bad start. And Moses is so incensed, he takes them and he just shatters them on the ground, which of course is highly symbolic of the fact that from the very beginning, nobody could keep the law. They simply couldn't. They, they were arrogant in their self-deception. They, they didn't know themselves. They thought they could keep the law and God was showing them, no, you really can't. So Moses shatters the law and 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 pleads with God and the nation of Israel. And God's like, all right, Moses, come back up here. That was a long walk, I'm thinking, right? He's like, don't bring anybody with you, just you. Don't let any animals feed on the mountainside. Like, everybody has to stay back, right? And Moses marches back up the hill, and, and, and God's up there in lightning and thunder and a cloud and, and bright light. 
And Moses gets up there. You think he wanted to hide? You think he was like looking around, wondering if there was maybe a rock to get behind or a little sagebrush or, you know what I'm saying? Would you have wanted to hide? I know I would have. You know, just like my first parents, Adam and Eve, what's the first thing they did after they sinned? They jumped into the bushes and they hid from God because they knew they were exposed. They knew that, that they were no longer holy. They felt exposed and small and helpless. What's amazing is, is um, once Moses gets up there, God comes down in a pillar of, of, of smoke and says to, to Moses, he says, I am Yahweh. He says it twice. Must have been. I can't even imagine how. My name is Yahweh. My name is Yahweh. And I am a God. And, and you know what's coming, right? I'm a God who doesn't put up with this stuff. I'm a God who doesn't play around. I am a God who is righteous. I am a God who. But take a look at what he said. This is Psalm 34. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. When it's all caps like that, that that means it's actually his personal name. Yahweh, Yahweh, I am Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you see the similarity of language? David was clearly referencing this keeping steadfast love for thousands. And, and I think there we're talking thousands of generations. Generations to the thousandth degree. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Do you think there might have been a sigh of relief on Moses' part? Maybe. You think Moses was like, whew, that was nice. You know what I'm saying? Like all that heaviness and brightness and light and all the brokenness. And God comes and he says, I am gracious. I give you what you don't deserve. I am merciful. I do not give you what you do deserve. At their point of failure, when Moses was probably undone in fear for the consequences that would fall on his head and on the nation uh, that, that he was leading, the people he loved, he comes before God and God says, I'm Yahweh. I'm Yahweh. I am gracious. I am merciful, and my love is steadfast to the thousandth degree. You have and you will fail. You have broken my law. But don't look at the law you broke. Look at me. Don't fill your vision with your failure. Fill your vision with my faithfulness. That's what he's saying. Remind yourself of my name, Yahweh, Yahweh, because that name speaks of steadfast love, of grace, and of mercy. God is gracious, so I can stop hiding. God is gracious, so I can stop hiding. This is really great news. And in our culture, honestly, this is a very popular message. When I am out speaking with um, unbelievers or, or my friends who, who haven't come to faith or, or of a different faith persuasion, uh, this message right here almost always receives a very warm response. People like to hear uh, about God's grace, right? Because we love grace. We love a message that says, you get what you don't deserve. Don't you love that message? Don't you love to hear you get what you don't deserve? I mean, if you admit it, the reality is culturally, we think we deserve grace. We actually think we deserve grace, which is part of the reason we don't appreciate it. 
Because we have an entitlement culture. We have a culture of entitlement. We believe we are entitled to what we don't have. Most of you feel entitled to a life that's better than your parents. It's like my due. It's my right. Right? It's like you get an education and I'm entitled to a job. Of course I deserve a job. I got the education. I feel entitled to it. I feel entitled to get what I don't have, right? If I don't have education, I feel entitled to education. I have a right to education. Why? Because I'm an American. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I'm an American. That means I deserve everything, right? That's the American dream. I am entitled to have every opportunity everybody else has. I am entitled to have every blessing every other person has. And that means I am entitled to a God who's cool with my failure. See, this is a very popular, culturally uh, acceptable message. People love the message of a God of grace, a God who just gives and gives and gives because we feel like that's what we deserve. And you'll hear this come out in the arrogance in the way we, we talk, right? You'll hear yourself sometimes say, uh, you know, well, I, I don't think I could believe in a God who... as if what you chose to believe about God could actually influence the reality of God, right? Man, that is arrogant entitlement. Well, I could never believe in a God who. That doesn't even make sense. So what you're saying there, when we say that, what we're saying is, I deserve a God made after my own image. I deserve a God made after my own likeness. It's not about me being created in the likeness of God. I deserve a God who's created in the likeness of me because I'm entitled, because I'm American, right? I mean, it's a sense of, of, of just having this, man, I deserve it. I deserve a God who loves me just as I am. I, I deserve a God who, who will never give up on me. Sadly, this arrogance has strongly influenced circles of progressive Christianity. Some friends of mine, people that I love, that I'm in conversation with, but I am concerned for. Um, Because in these circles, it's very, very popular to talk about God's grace. It's very, very popular to talk about God being a gracious and merciful God. And they would actually say um, that Jesus came and died not to change God's opinion toward us, but to change our opinion of God. That Jesus came and died so that not, not so that God would be reconciled to us, but so we would be reconciled to God, so that we would actually see God in a different way. I don't know if you've read this yet. You probably will if you're active in the blogosphere. This idea is, is catching ground. And really the idea behind it is, is that God is love. A very, very attractive and culturally acceptable message, right? Who, who wants to argue with that? We all, God is love and he loves you so much that he died for you to show you how much he loves you. That's a very, very warm and inviting message. Who could find any fault with that, right? God died. God sent Jesus to die so that, so that our opinion of God would be changed. See, these guys like to talk a lot about grace. They like to talk a lot about God. But honestly, when I really push in, I find that a lot of times they don't talk much about Jesus. They kind of avoid the cross unless they have to talk about it. But they love to talk about God's family, God as a father, God's grace, but, but I want you to think about what they're saying for a moment. Because what they're saying 
is that really the God of the Old Testament really just had a bad PR agent. He, he had a public relations nightmare, right? It's like God sat down with God and consulted God. And God was like, you know what? This whole inexpressible light thing, this, this holiness, this separation, this, this righteous anger thing, it's really not doing much for your image. It's really not very inviting. People, people don't feel welcome, right? So you know what? Let's change your image. Let's send Jesus. And, and Jesus will heal people and he'll say nice things, and he'll be warm and friendly. Um, he'll be like God's big hug to a lost world, and, and then he'll die, and he'll rise again. Because who can resist a love that is willing to die, right? It's, it's like that Sarah McLaughlin commercial. You know, you, you know what I'm talking about? It's, if, it's like two minutes long, and it feels like it's 16 hours. I will remember. You know what I'm saying? It's like, and they're showing these images of lost and poor dogs and cats. And by the time you're done, like, I'll pay you. Just stop, right? I mean, it's like, it's this overwhelming sense of, whoa, right? Like, like, that's what God's doing. God's sending Jesus to, to fix his PR nightmare and get us motivated to love him. That's what they're saying, ultimately, that, that Jesus came because the real problem at the heart of the human condition was not God's relationship with us. It was our perception of God. And really all we need is to change our perception of God and see him as loving and gracious and inviting and accepting. And then everything will be taken care of. You guys, this completely mangles the biblical teaching of who God is, of who Jesus was and what he did. And it will mangle our view of God and of ourselves. Here's the thing, you guys. God is not some cosmic beggar sitting on the sidelines of our lives begging for our attention, just yearning for our affection. God needs nothing from us. He is completely self-contained in himself. He didn't create us out of need. He created us because there was an overflow of him, his goodness that he wanted to pour out into the created world. God's not lonely some doting old man that just wants to pull us up into his lap and love us and convince us that, that he really does love us in spite of ourselves. God reveals himself in Scripture as holy. He does actually dwell in unapproachable light. He is a burning fire of righteousness. And his presence is dangerous. It will destroy anything less than perfect. By his very nature, he destroys what is impure, like fire consumes kindling. God is inexpressibly powerful. He created something out of nothing by simply thinking it. He can, with a thought, destroy and annihilate. And this God hates sin, hates sin because sin misrepresents his character. Sin lies about his glory. Sin says you can find what only God can give outside of God. You can be God and God will not share his glory because it's impossible to share. See, sin sucks the glory and goodness and holiness out of God's creation and leaves an empty shell. 
that is deadly to us and defaming to him. Jesus died because we sinned. And the consequence of sin was death. And I'm not just talking about the the death of the physical body, right? That's a momentary passing that is mysterious and somewhat scary to us. But the root of death means separation. We talk about physical death, we're talking about the separation of the soul from the body. But when we're talking about death biblically, when it says you shall die, what he's saying is you shall be separated from me, the source of life. And all of those desires and all of those appetites and all of those motivations that I put in you so that you would discover more of me will now have no place to go and they will tear you apart. Because you'll live in death. You will try to find your existence outside of relationship with the giver of life. Death is the result of sin. Eternal separation from God. Eternal separation from the source of life. Like Steve, man, that just sounds scary, man. How does it fit? How, How can God be a God of mercy and grace and a God who judges sin? Is that even possible, right? Culturally, we would say no. So we'd say he's just a God of grace and we ignore the judgment of sin. He's a God of love and mercy, but we don't talk about the judgment stuff. That's dark and heavy and man, that's a downer. And it tells me things about myself that I don't want to hear, right? But we can't get around it. Take a look at the rest of our verse. This is uh, again, Exodus 34. I apologize. I forgot to shift the underline down to the end of the verse. But take a look at the end of the verse. After it talks about him being steadfast in his love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Listen to that phrase, you guys. Who will by no means, how often will he do it? Never. God will never clear the guilty. Why? Because he is a righteous judge and by his very nature, he must judge sin. God cannot operate in one part of his character to the detriment of another. He can't say today I'm going to be loving and merciful, but not righteous. God is holistic in his being. He must operate at all times, completely out of love and completely out of justice, completely out of mercy and completely out of holiness. He will not clear the guilty because by his very nature, he must judge sin. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. What he's saying is there are consequences of sin and those consequences will be paid out to the final drop. There's a penalty and there's a price. And I am not the kind of God who does plea deals. I am the righteous judge of the universe and I will not let injustice exist. Here's the thing. We all have somebody we want to see judged by God. I don't care how loving and affirming you are. We all want justice in some degree. We all want things set right. Whether you're talking about Osama bin Laden or ISIS or or somebody in your life that abused you or abused somebody you loved, you want them held to account. The scary, scary thing though is when you realize you're supposed to be held to account too. That God doesn't just bring his righteousness to bear on those people you see as evil. He actually brings it to bear according to his righteous standard, which is perfection which means we're all in a bad spot. When it says, I will hold sin to account, 
That puts us in a really bad spot. Here's the question at the heart of the human dilemma. How can God remain just, true to his character, and justify sinners? How can God be the righteous, holy judge of the universe and be a God who expresses generosity, grace, and mercy to sinners? How can he judge and love? This is the question that makes sense of the cross. This is the question that makes sense of the purpose, life, death, and burial, resurrection of Jesus. And it's, it's the question that ultimately makes sense of our lives. Take a look at this. This is Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 26. This is an incredibly dense passage that um, I literally have spent months unpacking in different contexts, um, but I just want to hit it quickly. There's no distinction. What he's saying is no distinction between Jewish believers and Gentile believers, between morally righteous people and people who have no moral compass. There's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's that universal condemnation. We all fall short of the right standard and are justified by his grace. So we, we are declared right as a free gift, God giving us what we don't deserve, right? We're declared right in the, righteous, in the, in the um, sovereign courtroom of God as a gift. How is that made possible? Look at the next phrase. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption means the payback price, right? When somebody was redeemed from the slave market, somebody had to come in and actually pay the price of their slavery. The reason they were in slavery was because they had an indebtedness that they couldn't pay. And so as a result, they became bond slaves. They had to actually work a specific amount of years, maybe their entire lives, to pay off their debt. Jesus stepped in to pay the redemption price of our sin. He paid a debt we couldn't pay. And what was the price of redemption? The consequence of sin. What's the consequence of sin? Death. And not just death, eternal separation from God, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Word propitiation means satisfaction. Now here, let me ask you, who had to be satisfied here? In this payment, who had to be satisfied? Us or God? God. God was the judge. He had to be satisfied in the exercise of his justice. God was propitiated or satisfied by the redemption price Jesus paid by entering into our sin, becoming our guilt, and dying in our place, right? And this is all to be received by faith. We don't earn this. We don't change our lives to get it. We don't, we don't become more moral or more religious. We simply trust, right? I mean, that's kind of the bottom line, right? We rejected God because we didn't trust him. And what he's saying is, look, you can trust me now. You, you rejected my authority, come under my authority. You rejected my love, come under my love. By faith, responding to an invitation to relationship, right? Now, notice this, you guys. This was to show God's what? Righteousness. I, you know what I expect to see there? Love. That's what I expect to see. Jesus was on the cross as God's infinite display of God's love, and it, and it was. But according to this passage, it is just as clearly a declaration of God's righteousness, that He is a righteous judge. When we look at the cross, we not only see a display of God's love, we see a display of God's justice. That God, the righteous judge, was actually holding our sin to account. He was exacting the exact uh, consequence of our cosmic treason. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the former sins. Why didn't God annihilate humanity immediately? Because in his forbearance or his patience, he looked forward to Christ. 
So he let people live and do their lives and and all the rest of that, but he didn't hold them to account because he was going to hold Jesus to account for them. When Jesus died and rose again, he did it for everybody who did live, everybody was living, and everybody who would live, who would believe in him, who would once again come into relationship with God through faith in Christ. And he did this all, notice the very end, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that he might be the just judge actually enacting justice and the justifier, the one who's able to look at a sinner and say, I declare you right. Jesus is the only solution to the human problem. He who knew no sin became sin for us on the cross, paying the penalty we deserve to pay, dying in our place, and then rising again, right? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, so that we could be covered with an alien righteousness. We could be covered with His record. The cross is glorious because in it we see both the righteous holiness and the loving grace of God. What does it take for a sinner to be forgiven? Faith in Jesus. We don't fix ourselves. We don't get more moral. It's not a self-improvement project. We simply hear the message of God's love and we believe in God. We trust in the finished work of Jesus. We, we, We say, Jesus, your death was my death and your resurrection was my resurrection. You took my place. You were my substitute. And I rest in your record, not mine. I rest in your performance, not mine. I trust that you took my penalty and gave me your record, your character. It's faith that we don't pay our own penalty that Jesus did it for us. And now as believers, forgiven, we stand in grace. Romans 5 literally says you stand in grace. What that means is that when you come into the presence of God, you don't grovel. You don't crawl. You don't come in timid and fearful. You stand because you're standing in grace, the outpouring of God's love and favor. You are covered with Christ. We are covered in Christ's record. We are covered in His his character and in the outpouring of His blessing. Now, here's the catch, you guys. I believe this to be true, but I have a hard time believing it to be true. (laughs) I believe it, right? I get the theology, but I really struggle to believe it in practice. I'm just revealing my heart to you, and I'm guessing you do too. Like, I get it, man. I I see that, and I see the beauty of the cross, and I see the righteousness of God demonstrated in judgment, and I see the beauty of God demonstrated in love, but I have a hard time believing it. Here's the thing we all do, and, and, and it's reinforced, I think, by some of the patterns we have in Christianity. I spent a little bit of time calling out progressive Christianity. I'm going to spend a little bit of time calling out traditional Christianity um, because I can. Um, hmm. Traditional Christianity basically teaches this. Believe in Jesus because your sins need to be forgiven, right? They get that part of the message very, very clear, and, and it's usually very, very right. Believe in Jesus because your sins need to be forgiven. And once you believe in Jesus, the subtle message they give you is now live like you don't need him anymore. You believed in Jesus because you needed him. Now get down to the hard work of actually not needing him anymore. Live the kind of life that is perfect, right? Good Christians, mature Christians are the ones who have it all together. Good Christians, mature Christians are are the ones who, who, who don't sin anymore, right? And how does that play out in our lives? What it means is, is, is we come to church, the gathering of, of sinners forgiven by grace, and we pretend like we're not sinners in need of grace. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, like you drive here and as soon as you walk in the door, you try to pretend you didn't fight all the way to the door, that your kids were not screaming and, and pulling the hair out of the back of your head, right? And, and you get here and you're like, be nice little angels. We need to keep up appearance, right? Don't you dare make, right? And then somebody looks you're like, oh, it's all good. It's all good. You know what I'm saying? We, we put on our Sunday best, right? Why? Because I want you to be impressed with me. I want you to see me and say, man, that's a guy that's got it all together. That's a girl that's got it all together, man. That family, what a good Christian family. What a good Christian boy. What a good Christian girl. I hate that as an adjective. Don't tell me I'm a good Christian guy. I hate it. I don't want to be a Christian guy. I want to be a Christian. And a Christian is somebody who is desperately in need of grace. Somebody who is broken and can't fix themselves but is being fixed by a God who loves them and is empowering them and is changing them. Traditional Christianity often leads us into the trap of hiding. We show up and we have to hide and our lives are imploding. There are marriages that are, that are just disintegrating under the weight of, of public gazing. There are people living in addiction that they are terrified it will come out because then they might lose their position on the deacon board. There are people that are, that are just trying their best to white-knuckle their way into holiness as if that were even possible. It's a real shame. Because we believe in Jesus and then we deny His power. We believe in grace and then we deny its effective work in our lives because we turn to hiding and pretending. Hiding and pretending. I hide who I really am. I pretend to be what I'm not. I hide what I'm really struggling with and I pretend that I'm not. I, I, why? Because I'm so desperate for you to think highly of me. I'm so desperate for you to, to think that I'm okay, that I'm worthwhile. Right? And I'm really having a hard time believing it myself, which is why I really need you to think that of me because when you think that of me, it helps reinforce what I want to think of myself. Will you please just tell me, okay? Will you please just tell me that, I, that I've got it together? Will you please just tell me you admire me or that you like me? And do you see what we're doing in the process? God is glorious. God is gracious. God is good. God is great. And I'm trying to replace him with myself. Because God is gracious, I don't have to hide. My record is not my own. My standing is not in my strength. Two things happen, you guys. Two things happen when you start to get grace. The first is that you stop hiding. You stop hiding in front of God and and in front of people, right? You stop hiding in in front of God. Hmm. You You ever sin? Am I alone here? Am I in a room full of sinners here? We, yeah. You ever sin? And, and in the middle of your sin, you're like, God, don't look at me right now. Don't, don't, don't look. Don't, don't talk to me. Don't, don't. I'm just, I'm hiding. You're not here. <laughs> you're not here right now. Why? Why do we do that? I mean, partly because we want to keep on sinning at that point. We're like, I love my sin more than I love you, God, and I just don't want you to see it. But part of it honestly, is, is there shame involved? And we, we don't want to come before God in our shame. And so when we sin, and especially right after we sin, when the pleasure is gone and all we're left with is the regret, in that moment, we're hiding from God. We're, we're, like, we're like, man, I just, I am such a, I disappointed myself. I let myself down. I can't believe I, which by the way is all pride. 
It's all me saying I should have been able to white knuckle it. I should have been able to succeed. I should have been able to, you know, but, but, but in my pride, I'm hiding from God until I beat myself up long enough or I hide long enough that I feel justified coming back to God and saying, okay, God, I struggled with this. What tense? Past tense. I struggled with this. Will you help me not struggle with it again in the future? Like I had a problem and I fixed it. Now I need you to help me not to have the problem again. how incredibly arrogant are we? And yet we love this stuff, right? When when you're in Christian circles, how often when we tell our struggles, do we tell them in the past tense, right? You're like, oh man, I had this season in my life when when I was just beat up and I was walking in rebellion against God and, and, and I did all these evil things, but praise God, by his glory, I've been delivered. And I'm like, dude, I think you're still bleeding. I see it in your eyes. You're hurt, man. You are not out of this. Oh, no, no. By God's grace, I have been delivered. Why are we so committed to having it together? So determined not to show our need. Why do we need to be God? When you really start getting grace, you're invited out of hiding. When you really get grace, what ends up happening is you'll be right in the middle of your sin. You'll be like, God, I'm sinning but not mocking him, inviting him. He'd be like, God, I, right now, this is way more appealing to me. Right now, this is promising me something that I don't think I'm finding in you. Will you show me how to find it in you? Will you, like right in the middle of it, like right in the, you'll be like, what kind of boldness is that? To come into the presence of the most holy being ever in your sin and say, God, I'm kind of sinning right now. That's what grace does, right? Hebrews tells us to come to the throne of grace when we're at our time of need. Notice we're coming to the throne of grace, not the throne of judgment, because Jesus took our judgment on our behalf. We get to come to a throne that's outpouring acceptance and love, mercy and grace. And we're supposed to come when? When we have our act together? At our time of need. When you get grace, you'll be quick to run to God, even in the middle of your sin. When you get grace, you'll be quick to uncover your heart and say, God, this is really, really ugly. I'm feeling things and experiencing things that are just tearing me up. I am struggling with a temptation that is ripping me apart. And I know you don't reject me. I know you love me. You love me as I am and you love me so much you will not leave me as I am. So I come to you and say, here I am. You are gracious. So I don't have to hide. So we'll come out. When we get grace, we'll come out in front of God, but we'll also come out in front of people. In other words, we'll we'll be less prone to using people for self-affirmation, for personal, you know what I'm saying? Like, Like when I show up and I want to impress you, you realize I'm using you, right? I'm I'm saying, look how great I am because I want you to tell me how great I am. You know what I'm saying? That's me using you. That's me saying I have a deep need and I'm going to look to you to meet that need. And when you don't give it, I'm going to resent you. And when you do give it, it'll never be enough, Right? grace, when I see that God is gracious, it frees me to love people instead of use people, to actually be uh, humble in, in revealing my heart and letting people know I'm broken. Not like I was broken, but I'm broken like right now. Like this has been a really bad week and right now it really sucks. And I'm not talking like emotionally, I'm just down. I'm talking like right now I'm really struggling with temptation. Like this very minute. And I'm letting you know because I believe God's going to communicate his grace to me through you. 
What do we do when we're filled with shame and we're filled with performing? We separate ourselves from the body of Christ, right? Think about what traditional Christianity does. You show up on Sunday morning, where are your Sunday best? You walk in with all your great little kids and they all sit silently in the rows because you are, they're afraid you're going to kill them. And, <laughs> and, and then you're worshiping and you raise, you know, and, and then the sermon and you take your notes and you, oh, good job, pastor. And you shake his hand and, and then you go down to the fellowship hall and in the fellowship hall, you, you drink your coffee, you have a few conversations and you get out before everything melts down right? Just get out before the bad stuff comes out. And you're like, oh my goodness, we made it. Another week. I sure couldn't do that all the time. I'm glad it's only once a week, right? And then you got like people like me coming up and saying, telling you church isn't a place you go. It's a thing you are. People like me telling you that church isn't a building. It's a people and that you actually are the church 24 hours and seven days a week. And you're like, that's overwhelmingly heavy. I can't do that. Not if you're pretending, not if you're performing. But I'm telling you what, there is life in a community of grace. We're called the body of Christ. What happens in a body? Like what happens? Right now, there's blood flowing in this hand. And that blood is carrying oxygen to the tissues and the nerve endings. And that hand is connected by a neural network to my brain. And and it coordinates and it all works together. What happens if I cut the hand off and leave it on the ground? You think it's healthier? The hand's like, you know what? I'm just not really feeling like being exposed right now. I'm going to hide. I'm going to pull back. I'm going to just kind of be around the body, but not part of the body. That's like the most unhealthy thing you can do. When you realize God is gracious, you will move into community. You will expose your heart. You will let people know you and see you because you don't have to prove anything to them. See, when you get grace, you have no one to impress and nothing to prove. You don't need people to affirm you because God approves you in Christ. So the first thing that happens is you stop hiding. The second thing that happens is you will grow to hate your sin. See, people a lot of times are like, man, you preach that kind of grace, people are just going to start sinning. You tell people God loves you as you are. He's not waiting for you to fix yourself. God loves you even in your sin. You tell people that, and they're just going to go on sinning. But you know what happens when you really get grace? When you get a taste of that kind of love, it creates an appetite for more of that love. It actually realigns your heart's appetites away from sin and back toward the glory of God. The grace of God is the most powerful tonic to the sin of the human heart. There's nothing else that can fix you. Religion can't do it. The law can't do it. Performance can't do it. But grace can. When you taste the grace of God, the undeserved, unmerited love of God poured out on you because Jesus was crushed in your place and you now stand in the light of his resurrection. It awakens you to things that truly fulfill. Not immediately, but progressively. Progressively, you, you come to hate your sin. You know why? Because what ends up happening when we hide our sin because of shame is we're actually treasuring that sin. When we hide it, it's actually becoming our, our, our precious, Right? Lord of the Rings reference, right? That ring of all power, right? My precious. And it, and it distorts us. It really does. Because we hide it because we're ashamed of it. But let's be honest, we hide it because we treasure it. There's something about that sin that, that we're turning to to give us that we're not turning to God to get. And so we love that sin. When we in, 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 in boldness bring that sin before God and in boldness bring that sin before community, we see it in the light of holiness. And as soon as you see it for what it actually is, it's no longer a beautiful ring of value or power. It's a leech sucking the life out of your soul. And you're like, I don't think I want to reattach that. You see it for what it is. And it will actually increase your appetite for holiness. 
It will increase your appetite for God's presence. It will increase your appetite for what gives life instead of what drains it. When you get grace, you will progressively start to hate your sin. You'll stop excusing it. You'll stop treasuring it. You'll start exposing it. And then you will kill it instead of protect it. God is gracious, so I don't need to hide. God is gracious, so I don't need to prove myself. The God of the universe, the holy, righteous God, is ready to extend to you the outpouring of his grace, what you don't deserve, and the outpouring of his mercy, absorbing in himself what you do. If you will simply trust, if you will simply believe, and push forward in that trust, push forward in that faith. God will change your heart. He will free your soul. He will empower your courage. And you will become what you can't even imagine yourself to be. Because while God loves you as you are, He loves you too much to leave you as you are.